Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There are a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. Very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, in a moment, we'll take a closer look at the COVID vaccine, what a rollout in the UK might look like, how it might be achieved, but also uh, what are the ethical issues of persuading people to take it? We'll talk about both those issues in a moment on this special. But first, we have to discuss the news that's dominating the headlines. Boris Johnson's most powerful aide, Dominic Cummings, is going to stand down. A Source has told Bloomberg that he's going to leave by the end of the year. That said, Cummings wasn't answering questions as he arrived at work this morning. How are you feeling? Have you lost the power struggle, Mr Cummings? You're going some time, Mr Cummings. Did you want the chief of staff job? Have you lost the power, Mr Cummings? A man, a few words there. He did say earlier, though, that he had planned to make himself largely redundant, which is something that he laid out when he did that big hiring spree at the start of the year. Uh, the second key advisor, though, this week to go in uh, in Boris Johnson's inner circle, tensions blowing up over how the Prime Minister is uh, operating as, as alongside his colleagues. Cummings has been at the Prime Minister's side since he took power in July last year. But of course, they go back to the successful Vote Leave campaign in 2016. And a lot of that faction also now in Downing Street. But the issue is now leadership crisis vacuum in number 10. When we've got the virus and when we've got Brexit ticking away any day now, we hope for some sort of a deal. And there really is not long left to sort that out, Roger. See what comes through. But anyway, let's go back to our main special coverage today, which is the question of how it's going to be possible to roll out the vaccine, the thing that really made people suddenly perhaps have a spring in their step at the beginning of this week. Once that vaccine becomes available, we still don't know quite when, it's going to be a huge logistical challenge just getting it to people. Joining us now, I'm very pleased to say, is Helen Buckingham, Nuffield Trust Head of Strategy. Helen, welcome to the programme. Thank you so much for being with us. How well prepared is Britain to put out a vaccine in this way to so many people? Well, it's certainly a challenge, but actually the NHS does mass vaccination programmes quite regularly. So every year, um, your GP practices and pharmacists work together on the flu vaccination programme. All the way through the year, we have um, programmes, you know, the MMR programme for um, small children, for example. So actually vaccinating a large group of people uh, in a relatively short space of time isn't totally new to the NHS. Of course, this particular vaccine has some extra challenges attached to it. So we, you know, we know that the the Pfizer vaccine, if it, if it um, you know, gets through all the hoops of its approval processes, we know that it's got a particular issue about the cold chain. You know, it's, it's got to be kept in in particular conditions. So though, that does 
add a little um, nuance to this. And the the fact that we want to get as many people through as quickly as we can do adds a little nuance. But actually, the NHS has been planning for those scenarios for for some time. So I'm not going to say that it's it's going to be a walk in the park. Um, but I think the you know the, the very real issues that are are there, people are planning to address. Probably the biggest issue for the NHS is actually pulling together the workforce to do this. Uh, because you know there are three big asks to the NHS at the moment to to deal with the the COVID issues that we're already experiencing at the moment, to deal with the rollout of the vaccine, and as much as possible to deal with non-COVID issues to make sure that people can still access healthcare and they need it. And we've got to do all that with the same workforce. Uh, and where do you see that workforce coming from, Helen? I mean, in the past we brought doctors and nurses out of retirement. There's been talk around the army. What are the options there? And, and those are very much options that are on the table now for the NHS. So there's the NHS's existing workforce and um, NHS England is having conversations with um, all our GP practices now to talk about actually what workforce they could use. As part of that, it's been made very clear that the, the people who you know, signed up to come back to the NHS um, at the start of COVID, they're very much on the, the list for that if they're able to be um, to be trained to deliver vaccines or, or have that training already. Uh, and we know that the, the discussions are happening with the army as well. So those options are all on the table. So, Helen, just take us through the mechanisms of doing it. I mean, is someone likely, would I be likely to get a, a note through from my GP, a phone call, a text message telling me to come to a particular place, particular day? How would it actually work? Yeah, there'll be a call and recall system. So this is, you know, again, the detail of this is what's being worked through now. But what we're, what I'm expecting to see is a a national system that's linked to the prioritisation of of which groups will get the vaccine first, and that will be backed up by by local GP practices. So my expectation from everything that we've seen coming out of NHS England is that people will have a choice that they'll be able to get the vaccine either in or through their local GP practice or they'll be able to go to um, to another centre that's been organised nationally. But there'll, there'll be a, a call and recall system. So when you're what's called your cohort, the, the group of people that you, you sit in, when, when that cohort becomes due, uh, you will get a call to say, please book your appointment for the vaccine. And then what does the sort of introduction to society look like? I mean, people are going to want to travel, they're going to want to mingle once they've had the vaccine. Um, how do we know who those people are? How do we allow them to do that safely? Well, I think there's something that's really important about, at the moment, what we know about the vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, is that it, um, it, it, people don't develop the symptoms of coronavirus. Uh, what we don't yet know, and this is part of the information that's still being collected as part of the approvals process, is whether people who've been vaccinated will also not spread um, coronavirus and actually it's really important to know that uh, so as things stand at the moment and I think the Deputy Chief Medical Officer said this yesterday it's going to be really important to maintain the other actions that we've got in place until we're quite a reasonable way through the vaccination program because we need to use every method that we can do to avoid um, to, to minimize the spread and so, what know, about... not, we're not going to be back to normal life overnight yeah because I mean a lot of that is going to depend on who gets the jab First, I suppose, and we've already heard that, I suppose, more elderly people, frontline healthcare workers. But beyond that, is it possible to see which cohorts, you mentioned cohorts, what cohorts there would be? I think, again, that, that will be finalised as the vaccine goes through its final approvals process, because as part of doing that, they're going to be working through exactly which groups it'll be most effective for. But my expectation is that it'll be rolled out starting with the most, most vulnerable groups, so starting with that very elderly people and people in care homes, um, people who've got long-term conditions that make them more um, 
more susceptible, more at risk from coronavirus and, and working down through those order of priorities. So we'll see it working down from, from older people to younger people, for example. And I, I think, you know, will children be given the, the vaccine? At the moment, it seems that they'll, they'll probably be, if at all, later on in the process for two reasons. One is that we've seen already that children are less susceptible to, to coronavirus themselves. And secondly, we don't actually fully understand the, um, the role of children in spreading coronavirus. So we give children a flu vaccine, not because children are so prone to flu themselves, but because we know that children are very good spreaders of flu. Um, it appears that children are not so good at spreading coronavirus, which, you know, is quite helpful in some ways. Yeah. Uh, and Helen, in the next, prog- uh, in the next part of the programme, we're going to talk about uh, anti-vaxxers. And I suppose one of the responses is that people are worried about potential side effects. What happens? I mean, this is a broad question, but h- how does the government deal with this if there are some level of side effects from the vaccine? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the government's going to need to be really clear for the public about what, what they can expect when and some of those key messages about safety. I think that is very important. I mean, the MRHA, the organisation that actually authorises the use of the vaccine in this country, they are not going to lower their bar. So I, you know, we, we can be confident that when this vaccine is approved for use in the UK or any other vaccine, um, it, it will have met our normal standards for safety. Now, that doesn't mean that there won't be any issues because with any vaccine, you know, the ones that are used now, some people will have side effects. Uh, and so if you have your flu vaccine now, one of the questions that you'll be asked is, have you had this vaccine before? Did you have any any issues? Now, obviously, for the coronavirus vaccine, nobody will have had it before. So part of the process that GPs and others who are administering the vaccine are being asked to do is to make sure that they can put, um, that, that people can wait for a, a short period of observation after they've had the vaccine to make sure that anything immediate is picked up. But as I said, just to emphasise, the, you know, the, the safety level for approval of this vaccine will be no lower than the approval of any other vaccine that's currently in use in the UK. What about the suggestion that people who've had it might in some way be mud, I don't know, a badge or something, just to say, so that people know that they are mixing with people who have already had the vaccine? Is that a, a way forward? Well, I think because at the moment, and, and we will we will have more information about this by the time that the vaccine is actually delivered, but at the moment we don't know how well the vaccine will stop people spreading the infection. So and, and, uh, lots of people get badges after they've had uh, jabs of all sorts, but I, I think I wouldn't want to place reliance on that as a, as a public safety measure at this point. Briefly, Helen, when the vaccine comes out, is it something that you would feel comfortable having and your family members having? Absolutely. And if it's gone through the approval process in this country, then, then it will be as safe as any other medication that I might consider taking. And absolutely, I would. But it's true to say, you know, without spreading alarm, no vaccine is entirely risk-free. Well, as I say, you know, vaccines and any other medication that are approved for use in this country now, uh, some of them have side effects in a, in a small number of people. You know, a, a, any drug that you take, if you read its information leaflet, it will tell you the side effects to watch out for. So absolutely you know, nothing that we take now um, is without risk. The, I, my expectation is that this vaccine will go through all the same safety processes as everything else, and it will have no, no higher a risk than any other vaccine that's approved in the UK now. 
Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Even if a vaccine is effective, it can only work if people agree to have it. But we've got the anti-vaxxer movement. People refuse a vaccine, and that's seemingly grown despite the pandemic. A recent study by the Centre for Countering Digital Hate found that 147 of the biggest anti-vax social media accounts had gained at least 7.8 million followers since the outbreak of COVID, taking their total amount to about 58 million. So growing interest in this area. So what are their concerns and will it crucially impede the effective rollout of a vaccine? For more to discuss this, we're joined by Dr. Harriet Leyland, clinical advisor for the GP booking app my GP and Hal Sosabowski, who's the Professor of Public Understanding of Science at Brighton University. Um, Harriet, first of all, you've done a bit of research on this. Just take us through what you found about the enthusiasm around uptake for a vaccine. Um, so uh, my GP did our research back in the summertime, in, in June, July time. And at that point, we found that um, people were keen to take up the vaccine. So I think 78% of our respondents um, said that they would take the vaccine at that point. Um, however, um, that that may have changed now with, um, you know, the, obviously the, the large sort of anti-vaxxer movement, but also I think with the vaccine being sort of nearly here, I think you're then thinking about it in a bit of a different way. But is it to do with um, the different sorts of people who might refuse this, Harriet? I mean, is it clear across different demographics, different age groups, who are the people who are likely to be resistant? Um, yeah, I mean, I think there is is some difference. So I think one of the things that we found in our study was that, it, you know, people were more hesitant about giving the vaccine to their children. And I mean, obviously, that's understandable, given that um, if the risk of serious um, disease is, is lower, then any perceived risk of a vaccine, you know, can be more significant, whereas for somebody with significant health risks, that might mean that were they to contract coronavirus at COVID-19, that they would become, you know, be more likely to become unwell, then, you know, your risk benefit analysis of, of that is different. And I mean, obviously, within society, there are you know, groups of people that tend to be more reluctant to take up vaccines anyway or, you know, would use alternative sources of information to get their health information and perhaps they're more likely to be reluctant to take a vaccine. And Hal, you work around public understanding of science. You'd have thought that in the time of a pandemic, people would be grappling for a vaccine. Why then is this movement against a vaccine so potent? I, th I think there's... Um, it's quite popular in, in times such as this 
to start embracing conspiracy theories. And what we've seen in the media and on the social media is exactly that, that um, COVID is, was manufactured. It's either a conspiracy, it was manufactured. It's all about redistribution of wealth. And I also think that we're still in the throes of um, the MMR issue before when um, there was um, a study done on, I think, 12 children and a inaccurate correlation drawn between the MMR vaccine and autism. So there is some sort of public uneasiness about vaccines, but these are desperate times, and um, this has been brought out quickly, quite correctly, because we've um, had this, this huge situation, which is a once-in-a-generation thing. Well, that's interesting. Let me pick that up with you, Harry, because you work as a GP. Um, the MMR autism thing, many people remember it. I remember it from when, when my children were the age to get it or not, and the great debate there was then. Are people still bringing up that when they talk to you? Um. Yeah, I mean, just just to clarify, I'm not currently practicing as a GP, so just. Um, but yes, it does it does come up. It is something that does concern people. I think less so now than probably five years ago, um, but it you know it is still out there, and unfortunately, you know that that sort of um, misrepresentation of the data, um, you know, has done a lot of damage, and you know is directly attributable to things like the rise in measles cases, for example. So, Harry, what are you seeing then as the biggest concerns that people are saying for not getting a vaccine um, or not having their children vaccinated as well? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's sort of there's, there's two things. So I think there's the speed at which this vaccine has been developed. And I think, you know, it's, there's been a lot in the media about normally vaccines would take many years to develop this one's been developed in less than a year and you know i think that that is not an unjustified um cause of anxiety but we have got a really good um regulatory body in the mhra in the uk um, similar bodies both in the um, usa and in europe that will very carefully look at the data before this vaccine gets you know being given to the public um and I think with with the sort of the children part of it, I think it is that sort of risk benefit analysis, the concern that Hal mentioned generally around vaccines. Um, you know, you're giving a medicine to somebody who is well. So it's different to having a medicine when you're unwell, which, you know, of course I'll have that. It'll make me better. Whereas if you're walking into your doctor's clinic or, you know, wherever the vaccinations will be given and you're well and then you've get given something that may, you know, at a minimum cause some pain or, you know, something like that. Um, but you're unsure of, of what the other side effects might be, then that's a slightly different balance. But as I say, I think, you know, if these vaccines, when they come through and they've been through the regulatory bodies, you know, I would feel confident that they were safe to deliver them to patients and to receive them. Hal, let me pick up on themes in terms of what the government perhaps can do, the authorities can do, because it is a, a matter of persuasion, I suppose. We've we've seen uh, <clears throat> lots of posters and advertisements uh, about how you handle the pandemic, things, you know, washing your hands, this kind of stuff. Is that the same sort of thing that needs to be out there to convince people to have this jab? It is, and I think part of the problem is the mixed messages that we've been having hitherto about what our behaviour should be and where we should or shouldn't wear masks and so on and so forth. Um, you're quite right, but I also think there's a certain element of civic um, responsibility. Um, if one is offered the vaccine and one doesn't take it, it's not 
the individual that's necessarily suffering. It's the whole of the herd, and it's what economists call the free rider problem. In order for it to be successful, we all need, where possible, to have that vaccine. So we do have the herd immunity, which I understand as being... Um, it was misconstrued early on um, last March, um, Boris's comments about herd immunity. But we do need a herd immunity. And the way to, to get that in the end is for all of us, where possible, to have the vaccine. Uh, and Harriet, speaking as a medical professional, do you see a situation where the uptake isn't big enough for a rollout of a vaccine to be effective? Um, I think that is possible, but I think we're not, you know, we're not going to be in a position with these vaccines that everyone can get the vaccine on on day one. That's, you know, not logistically possible. Um, so what I would hope would happen, and I think will happen, is that as the vaccine, you know, comes into circulation and the government have set out quite clearly which order of people will get receive the vaccine. Um, so start, starting with um, some of the high-risk groups like um, care homes and then clinical staff, um, you know, I think you will then start to sort of get that reassurance um, both within the, you know, within the system and in, in the public. That doesn't mean to say that it's going to be easy. And I think um, I agree with Hal that there's been a lot of mixed messaging in, in the last few months. Um, and I think we do need to be absolutely clear that, you know, the vaccine is the way forward to get us back to, you know, a more normal life. Um, and we're not doing it, you know, you're not just doing it for your own um, sake, but you are doing it for society as a whole. How, what about coercion in this? Because um, it's not that long ago that um, Matt Hancock, the health secretary, was considering at least, not in relation to the pandemic, but into things like measles and issues of that kind, of having compulsory vaccination of children. Is that something you could ever see coming into effect? Would it even be effective, really, uh, in this case? Okay, so we are bumping at the edges of my um, knowledge and comfort zone. Um, the interesting thing about the vaccine is when it's first rolled out, as um, my co-contributor has um, alluded, um, it starts protecting the individual, the high-risk groups. And then as it's rolled out towards the lower-risk groups, it then protects the whole herd. Um, I think medical ethics is one of these things whereby you can't compel someone to have something done to them without their consent. Um, but we can advise and um, encourage where possible and educate. And I think the, the public... With, with some good reason, do have reason to sort of um, pause for thought with regard to things because of things like the MMR vaccine and, of course, things like thalidomide before that. But the reality is these are desperate times. I think people are a bit anxious about the speed at which this vaccine has been developed. But on the other hand, that's what happens when there's a major international crisis. All resources are diverted to finding a solution. And here we have an 80% effective solution. And... Um, if it goes through the appropriate governance, we've got no reason to think it won't do exactly what it should do. And Harriet, very briefly, what's your take? Should a vaccine be made compulsory? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I think in this country, we don't have, you know, a, a history of doing that. Um, and I don't think we will need to do that. Um, and, you know, as, um, as Hal said, that, you know, that compulsion to receive a medical intervention isn't something that that feels ethically comfortable um, but I think it's about getting the right information and the right understanding in, into the public. 
and briefly to you, how do you think ever do you think enough people will end up taking this vaccine? Yes, I mean, it's, it, at the end of the day, this is no more and no less like the flu jab, and that's a, a matter of routine. I think it's because this is this is a, a brave new world, if you will, and and yeah. people are adjusting to it. Um, they're looking at it with some degree of not scepticism but uneasiness. Um, yeah. But flu jabs are routine, and this is. It's not like the flu, but it's um, another virus that needs to be treated in the same way that the flu needs to be treated. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers and innovators leading the way from design and culture to technology, science and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions. July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.